to be sure there were more than three, but for us here tonight, there are three who really matter, three who are worth our attention and focus. One of them was a man named Simon. We might know him by his other name, Peter. You've already met him. He's the one who keeps nodding off over there. And one of the others is Judas. He comes late into this garden scene, leading a whole mob of people straight to Jesus, betraying him with a kiss. And although I hate to admit it, of all of the people in this garden scene, they are the two that I can identify with most. And Peter, this guy who makes big promises, great pronouncements, declarations of his loyalty and dedication, he is loud and proud and full of vibrato one moment, and the next moment he's overcome with, with fear and self-consciousness and even drowsiness. Peter, he talks a big game, but he just can't seem to follow through. And I get that. Maybe you do too. If I could only count the times that I've said, never again will I, or from this moment on I promise to, only to false start, to lose my resolve, or to flat out fail. I don't think I could count high enough to number all of those times. And then there's Judas, the guy everybody loves to hate. Judas, the perfect name for our newborn son, said no one ever. <laughs> Judas, right? And, and I get, I, I get Judas. See, because I believe Judas is a guy who really wants to be good. He wants to do good, but he wants something else more. And who here doesn't understand that pull? And then, of course, the third man is Jesus. And he's the one that I find truly confounding. I just don't get him. Of course, there are times when I get him. At certain points in his life where, where I relate very well, where we connect. Moments where he's telling off all the religious leaders, those hypocrites, those oppressors of the lowly. I get that. When he's in the temple flipping over tables out of rage and anger for what they've turned the house of God into, I, I get that. Or those scenes when he's confronting his family. Who doesn't understand family conflict? When his family comes to take him home and he has to put them in their place, I get that. And when he's feeding hungry people, who, who doesn't want to feed hungry people? If I had the resources, if I had the power, I'm sure I would do the same. I get that. E even giving speeches to crowds, I get that. 
although something tells me he was probably better at it. But you see, in this, in this moment here in the garden, in, in this very moment, I understand Judas. I understand Peter. I understand when Jesus says to Peter, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And who of us doesn't understand that? Who of us here haven't given in to some of the lower, baser impulses Who of us here haven't given in to, given in to things like, like anger and, and greed and fear and lust and jealousy? See, I get that. But Jesus, he is the one I just don't get. I especially don't get how he could be so strong in this moment when he is facing something so terrifying. How did he stand his ground? How did he keep himself from from running away? How did he not hide? How did he not stand and fight back? And I know some of you here tonight, uh, you're thinking because you spent a lot of time in church, you're thinking... It's because he was the son of God. And to you I say, yeah, but. See, see, I believe he's the son of God too. And I believe it because everyone who was closest to him eventually came to believe that. I mean, tell me, is there anything that one of your coworkers could do to convince you that, that he or she was God in flesh? What about your boss? I didn't think so. And yet everyone who knew Jesus well, everyone who watched him live his life, everyone who watched him die, they were convinced that he was the son of God. I I believe that's true. And yet, it's too easy of an answer. And it totally ignores the anguish he experienced here in the garden, the the drops of blood that he sweat out. It ignores the, the battle of wills that must have raged on inside of him. See, tonight, we should be preoccupied with this question. How did he do it? How did he overcome himself in order to do what God the Father wanted him to do? How did he not go the way of Peter or Judas? How did he not go the way that we would go if we were in his place? See, tonight this question should haunt you. Because if you can unlock this question, the the secret of Jesus' strength of will, not only will you understand something about Jesus, but you'll understand something important about yourself. Don't you want to know? See, I'm convinced that in that moment, when everything inside of him was telling him to run, to hide, he focused all of his his attention on, on a greater desire, something he valued more than his freedom. 
Something he valued more than his comfort or safety. Something he valued more than his life. He was, he was utterly focused on something greater than the fate that he was facing on a cross. He was focused on you. That's right. He was focused on you. More than his own freedom, he wanted yours. Now, freedom's a word we throw around in this country. It, it matters to us, but we talk about it all the time. But so much bigger than the freedom to say what we want or to gather where we want or to write what we want. I'm talking about real freedom that Jesus wanted for us. I'm talking about freedom from a life of, of beating yourself up every time you give in to one of those weak impulses. I'm talking about real freedom. I'm talking about, about freedom... Of, of living where, where you're not under the watchful eye of some impossibly high master whose standards you can never, ever live up to. I, I'm talking about freedom from fear about your future because who isn't a little bit afraid when you think about your future, especially when we think about the fact that, that all of us were created to be eternal and the only difference is where we'll spend that time. See, see Jesus came and he overcame so that you could be free from all of that. I, I was told once, and I still believe it's true, I, I've held on to it ever since, that the only way you can ever win in your struggle against personal weakness, the only way you can ever win in your battle against sin, is to love something more than yourself. And some of you just need to hear that tonight because you're fighting battles in your life and you're fighting hard and you're going head on against some addiction or struggle or habit and, and you're fighting and you're fighting and you're fighting and maybe you just need to take some of that energy away from this head-on fight and you need to put it into learning to love something more than yourself. The only way you'll ever win in your battle against sin is to love something more than yourself. And for Jesus, that something was you. And it was the person sitting next to you. And it's the person across the street who, who lives across the street from you. And, and it's the person you cut off trying to get here on time tonight. It was you. You were the thing that kept him focused. You were the thing that enabled him to, to, to press on even when the battle of wills raged on inside of him. It was you. And I don't get it. I can't get my mind around it. A decade or so after all of these things had happened, there was a man named Paul, and uh, he wrote some words. And, and Paul started off his adult life being a persecutor. He, he, he fought against everyone who believed that Jesus was the Son of God. Not only did he fight against them, but he, but he beat them. He locked them in prison. He had some of them killed. 
But something happened to Paul where he became convinced that Jesus was who he said he was, and he gave his life. He devoted his life to following Jesus. And Paul, uh, he wrote some words in the part of the Bible that we call Romans. And these, and these words give me such great comfort because Paul was so much smarter than I am. And he was so much more godly than I am. And yet he experienced the same struggle that I'm experiencing right now in this moment. Here's what he said. He said, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, I can just hear Paul scratching his head as he writes those words, saying, this doesn't make any sense. You might give your life for someone who's good or someone that you love or someone in your family or someone who is noble and will do good, but to give your life for someone like me, Paul says, it doesn't make any sense. See, he couldn't get his mind around it either. In spite of everything I've said here tonight, this is the thing I don't get about Jesus This is the thing that I just can't seem to get my mind around. And I hope it's something that you can't get your mind around either. Instead, tonight, I hope you can get your heart around it. Because that's when everything will begin to change for you. See, three men in the garden, and two of them, they are so much like me. And one of them, he is, he is nothing like me. And that's why I put my trust in him to cover over my past, to, to, to be in my present. That's why I trust him for my forever. That's why I love him. And my hope for you tonight is that as the rest of this experience unfolds, even if you can't get your mind around these things, my hope for you tonight is that you will begin to get your heart around these things too. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for sending Jesus someone that I just don't get. Father, in my weakness, in my sin, in my defeat, I don't understand someone who loves so deeply the way Jesus loves. Father, I don't understand how I, how, how we could be the object of his affection, the people that he loved so deeply, even more than himself, the people that drove him to give his life away. Father, my mind is 
is blown. I, I can't comprehend these things. But tonight, I pray for me and I pray for us that you would help us wrap our hearts around these things. To love the one who has loved us so deeply. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen.